Hello, and welcome to our latest episode of Healthcare Checkup Podcast. My name is Nicole Thorne, and I'm an attorney at Browse McDowell, practicing in healthcare. And you are joining us for today's session titled, Are You Properly Covered? A Healthcare Provider's Guide to Key Business Insurance Policies. And as we've done in the past, uh, I've engaged Brian Shower with us today to uh, bring to light some issues involving healthcare providers and their insurance coverage. This is a, a critical topic, even in spite of, of the last 24 hours notice of, of new mandates that we're all obligated to comply with. And hopefully the takeaways here will help you as healthcare operators and owners really understand and, and mitigate any risk that you have with respect to items that you might have insurance coverage for. So welcome, Brian. Nicole, thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. Good, good. So for our audience, just for background, uh, Brian is a certified property and casualty underwriter and vice president at Shower Group. Shower Group provides a number of insurance services to a wide swath of different industry clients. And he's going to talk with us today about some of the very specific healthcare providers' needs and the application to such coverage in our space. And we wanted to just touch on a couple types of coverage for the purpose of this podcast. One is employment coverage. Uh, we also want to share cyber coverage and MedMal. And we'll get into a little bit of detail on, on each of those and get to hear from Brian on that. And for our audience, while I want to plug our amazing insurance recovery colleagues at Browse McDowell who help employers sue insurance companies when they don't get the coverage that they're supposed to get. The point of today's podcast really is to help you understand broadly what you have in coverage, what's available, and, and a couple key points that perhaps you'll want to analyze or review in your own policies to mitigate those types of issues and avoid coverage gaps. So with that, Brian, why don't we get started with um, employment coverage? I'm not sure a lot of my clients anyway are, are totally familiar with, with all the, the features of what that type of policy will provide for them. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the, the coverage form that we uh, can provide in that area is called employment practices liability. And really what that is, what it's addressing is a company's you know, need uh, for you know claims that could arise or be alleged um, you know regarding wrongful termination, discrimination, harassment, uh, retaliation, uh, etc. Uh, the, the typical amount uh, and, and size of, of, of employer does not matter here. Anyone can be can be open to these uh, particular uh, uh, types of allegations. Uh, and, and we are seeing an uptick in these claims and, and a lot of that is really due to um, you know, recent trends, you know, including, you know, the Me Too movement, um, you know, increased focus on racial injustice and social injustice. COVID-19 has had an impact uh, in the uh, in the frequency and severity of these claims with furloughs, business closures, bankruptcies, you know, Fair Labor, Fair, Fair Labor Standard Act, uh, you know, gender discrimination, you know, and also even the unequal burden uh, of, of child care on, on, on female workers. So, uh, it is a key area that we uh, that we we look to uh, all of our uh, uh, commercial clients uh, that they would uh, be evaluating whether or not this this coverage is necessary. Uh, but but essentially, any employer that has employees uh, would would have these exposures. 
Yeah, and so that's a good point. And I think, um, you know, to know the applicability and the availability of it, would you say, I feel like a lot of employment laws are at federal, meaning they will apply in most cases to most employers, but are there any certain pitfalls or, or certain things that you find your clients maybe don't realize they don't have or they should be specifically asking for or, or information that you need to know about them to ensure that they have the right coverage on this in this space? Yeah, um, without a doubt. One, I'd say first and foremost, not, not all employment practices policies are, are created equal. The coverage forms uh, do vary greatly uh, from policy to policy. And, and they need to be negotiated based on a business owner's specific needs. Um, so they're written as broadly as possible. Uh, the one thing I'd also mention, Nicole, you're right. A lot of this is based on federal, but the states, uh, you know, can vary greatly uh, depending on those, uh, those, those jurisdictions. So you've got, you know, um, uh, for, for example, uh, you know, we've seen some fairly large um, uh, settlements and awards out of the state of California, um, uh, because their, their, their courts are a little bit more, um, uh, plaintiff friendly. Um, so spread of employees, uh, can, can have a, a real impact, um, and, and can have an impact on cost, you know, carriers on their applications. Uh, and, and when we're talking to our clients, we, you know, we're talking about, you know, where that, where those employees are located because that can, that can drive costs and, and, and limit requirements or, or requests, or I'm sorry, or recommendations, uh, from, from our group. Good. Okay. And and just a little bit, I, I know this is literally hot off the presses and, and I don't want to put you on the spot on this, but I think it's important to point out because it's just super timely, honestly, is this notion about these new vaccine mandates that employers are being asked to comply with. And as we realize a number of legal challenges are likely to occur in the very near future, if not already, um, you know, I, we're suspecting, I think, just on the employment side, some of those legal claims are based on or could be based on some type of discriminatory practice really on either side, meaning vaccinated or unvaccinated employees. Um, and, and while I realize you can't tell us today that it is or isn't covered maybe just provide us with the scope of, you know, if a client gets a, a threat of a discrimination claim, maybe by virtue of the fact that there is some type of policy that the employer has implemented, what steps would you suggest the employer takes, I mean, to sort of step through, you know, I'm sure there's some probably some notice obligations and, and just sort of finding those next steps with regard to, you know, using insurance coverage for any legal claim. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. It is extremely timely and we are absolutely in uncharted waters with uh, with what we're seeing here as we have been, I guess, with uh, with, with, with COVID-19 of late. Um, but yeah, I think that the important thing here to mention under employment practices is the, you know, the, the, the coverage trigger is really, um, you know, it's, it's quite broad, uh, but it really would, uh, in this case, you know, allege, you know, be around some allegation of uh, discriminatory practices. Uh, so if an employee were to make those allegations, uh, I would make a strong recommendation that you would uh, turn that into your employment practices insurance carrier uh, and, 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 um, you know, allow the investigation of that claim to to to, to proceed. Um, you know, I think it's important, and I and I think we'll, we'll probably mention it uh, here later as well. That you know, there is 
a reporting requirement in every insurance policy. So when you get into the terms and conditions, it does tell you uh, essentially what notification you are to give them and, and how, how how quickly it, it should come through. Um, and the biggest thing is a denied claim or uh, you know something that maybe doesn't materialize further into a claim. Maybe someone throws out an allegation, but it, it, it gets, uh, you know, it, it never really goes anywhere. Uh, they don't allege any kind of monetary damages. Um, you know, those don't count against uh, an insurer, you know, an insured uh, if they turn it into an insurer and, and no no uh, payment is made. So it, it, there's really no downside to turning these things over, uh, similar if the claim were to be denied. But in, in this case, I, I, I'm not aware of any exclusion uh, in an employment practices policy that would outlaw something uh, related to what we're talking about, as long as there are you know, the other uh, components of the loss, that there was some form of discriminatory practices uh, and that they are alleging that there are some damages that would be covered under the policy. Sure. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, So shifting gears a little bit, I know this is a short amount of time and we wanted to maybe just highlight um, some, some key types of coverage right now. And our second one really is cyber coverage. And sans the pandemic, I think there were a lot of just upticks and we've seen this ramp exponentially in the last two years. Uh, what I call is essentially organized crime at this point is really prolific. And we tell our clients anymore, it's really just not a matter of if, but when, and particularly in the healthcare space, you know, everyone's been scrambling to deal with healthcare issues and and maybe gotten sloppy or lax with regard to their IT security things. And even the smallest clients, I think, have have maybe, I don't want to say buried their head in the sand, but they just don't think that they rise to the level of size or value that might make them a target for a cyber criminal. However, we're finding there's a smattering across the board. So, you know, if you're a solo practitioner or if you're a multi billion dollar health system, you both need coverage, um, you know, because you're, you're potential targets on a number of levels. And so maybe just share with us some of the recent changes you've seen on cyber coverage as a result of this proliferation of cyber crime. Sure. No, and, and, and Nicole, you are, you are spot on uh, with, uh, with your assessment. I mean, we are see we have seen um, since 2018, a 486% increase uh, in the number of cyber claims, uh, whether those are insured or uninsured, uh, and those are just the ones that uh, that that uh, that we're aware of, because there is no at this point requirement to even report that you've been breached. Um, but you're also exactly right when it comes to this. This is the indiscriminate of the size of the uh, of the of the company. You know, most of these these attacks. Uh, you know, if you think of it more in a fishing analogy, right? It's it's kind of dragging the net behind the, behind the boat. And, uh, and, and they're going to, they're going to see, you know, whatever they can catch. Um, now, again, being a larger company, you may have a little bit more defenses built up, uh, but you'd also be a little bit more of a, of a target rich environment because of the data that you have uh, and the ability to extort that particular company, maybe for, for, for more, more money. Um, but what we're seeing in the insurance carrier marketplace is really, you know, multi, multiple uh, changes. First is uh, underwriting requirements are changing where, you know, a few years ago to get a cyber policy, the applications were, were, were fairly simple and, um, and, and didn't require a ton uh, of, of uh, 
of security provisions. I mean, it was basically kind of basic uh, security measures. Now uh, they're starting to ramp those up. And again, depending on the size of the business, the big one in our industry right now has become multi-factor authentication. Um, there's a the majority of cyber insurance carriers today will not even underwrite the company uh, if they uh, do not have multi-factor authentication in place, which is really a, a two-factor authentication process to access the system or your email. Um, uh, so it would be you know something you know and something you have. Uh, you probably see this now with your banking, uh, where where you're, you're getting a text message every time you want to uh, log into your to your banking account uh, along with your password. Um, but in addition to increasing uh, the the you know the requirements that they have on their the, the company that they're underwriting uh, from an IT standpoint, the increase in claims has also created um, uh, an increase in uh, in premiums. Uh, we've seen an increase in premium right now, probably on average of fifteen to twenty percent. Um, uh, but uh, but they they've they've been as large as 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 more than doubling uh, the, the the cost of the coverage. Uh, but we're also seeing capacity uh, getting getting uh, you know cut down. Carriers maybe where they were willing to offer larger or higher limits of insurance, reducing uh, their uh, their exposure. So you have to layer in a, a cyber insurance program uh, more more quickly. And then finally, from a coverage standpoint, and and this has been true of the industry the, since it's since it's been around. It really is a newer coverage form when you compare it to other insurance coverages that have been available. So it's 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 really not a matter of just having a cyber insurance policy and being able to check that box, but it's also understanding the coverage terms as as uh, carrier forms will vary in scope significantly from insurer to insurer. So it's really important for business owners or the the folks that make the decision on the insurance coverage to to really understand or, or make sure that their advisor understands uh, their cybersecurity risk. And so, uh, you know, it, it's it's making sure that that person also understands how your systems are configured and uh, making sure that they're presenting you the broadest possible coverage form. And then also, if they're able to help partner with your organization, offer any loss prevention services or, or tools. Yeah, good. And you bring up a good point. I will say that, again, in the healthcare space, uh, you know, for once in our lives, the healthcare people (laughs) were ahead of the curve in some way because HIPAA has been around forever, like since 1996. And many of the security protocols that we see in a lot of state data privacy laws, the ones that are being promoted at the federal level to create a national standard, um, we've been doing in the healthcare space for years. Now, have we been doing it well that's probably you know for debate, but I will say that a lot of folks are familiar at least with some of those standards. Um, but what we've also seen, I think, in healthcare is that many of the, particularly the electronic medical record platforms that we use and practice management systems are all almost all now exclusively remote hosted by some type of, of vendor who hosts our data in the cloud environment. And just to be clear, you know, with our audience, and maybe you can shed some light on this, you know, from a legal standpoint, as we review those vendor contracts for our clients, we're always looking to shift risk, right? So this notion that just because, you know, your EMR vendor is hosting your data, they're the ones, you know, responsible for security. And while that's true, and oftentimes we can craft vendor agreements to be as 
as risk averse as possible so that that risk is on the vendor. Really under HIPAA and, and frankly, some other data privacy laws, the buck still stops with the owner of, in our case, protected health information. And so I I just want to put a plug in there. And if you have any follow-up thoughts uh, with regard to any uh, remote hosted environment, that those are still things we want to have coverage for because just because it's not my server doesn't mean I'm still not on the hook for losses, for breach notification, and for some of the things that we see helping us in cyber policies. So I don't know if you have some additional advice or thoughts on um, you know, that type of remote hosted product. You know, yeah, I think uh, you're, you're, you're absolutely right on. And uh, we get this question a lot uh, because a lot of our clients sometimes will point to the fact that it's remote hosted as saying, hey, we don't we don't have much of an exposure here. And, and, and you hit the nail on the head in the sense of those 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 agreements really do, um, uh, you know, set the stage for, you know, who contractual shifting of risk. And, and, and in some cases, yeah, you can't get them completely ironclad and thrown on the actual, uh, you know, cloud-based provider or, or, or whomever else, the third-party provider. Um, in addition to that, I, I, I'd say that, you know, even in those cases, you'd still want your cyber policy to be providing, uh, you know, defense costs and, um, and, 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 and breach costs um, you know, whether that's a ransomware, uh, you know, reimbursement payment, uh, if, uh, if, if you still needed to, to provide uh, a ransom payment, uh, whether that is third-party IT, whether that's defending lawsuits that could come in or, 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 or being required to monitor someone's credit. You know, if the, the insurance carrier believes that the third party uh, is, is, is responsible for that claim and, and, and they pull a contract that you guys have where you guys were able to adequately transfer that risk, um, you know, they could go through a process called subrogation to try to, uh, you know, kind of claw back some of those uh, expenses that, that that you've incurred, which would you know, come off of your loss history. Absent of the insurance policy, you're going through that process on your own, which can be expensive and can take, you know, years to uh, uh, to, to work through. So, no, we, we still encourage our clients, even with that, uh, that type of an exposure, uh, that the policy is valuable to them. Um, and, and, you know, Nicole, you guys over at Browse know this, know this environment better than anybody else. You guys have a wonderful cyber practice team and I know you're, you, you work in that area as well. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, you guys have a ton of expertise here and, and, and so, yeah, we would, uh, uh, also want to work with you guys, uh, as, as much as possible, uh, with, with clients and, and, and if clients are using your services here, uh, you know, to try to, uh, you know, add you to a panel uh, as a provider that can that can assist at the time of a loss. And, and, and that needs to be done, you know, before a loss occurs. So if clients are familiar with your group and, and, and work, work closely with them, uh, our recommendation would be to, uh, to have you scheduled on as a, as a panel provider in advance. Yeah, right. And and that's been a recurring theme here, just even in our discussion here today is this concept of notice. And as you mentioned earlier, it's really applicable in any type of coverage. And as we we kind of shift to our last, uh, I'm going to call it a mini topic because I feel like it's been around forever and it's probably the most um, common type of coverage um, is is MedMal. But in any of these events, you know, to put us or your insurance carrier to help facilitate that um, on notice is key because, as, as you pointed out, sometimes the policy doesn't cover things 
that they were not given a heads up on. And so to the extent that, that a provider or a, a healthcare entity incurs some kind of expense without telling their carrier and then expects to be reimbursed by the policy for those expenses, those, in my experience, can be excluded if they weren't on notice that sort of, you know, the clock was ticking, right? That they're now in some, you know, sense in the timeline of coverage space. And so I think for our, our listeners today, just important to realize, err on the side of, of even talking to your broker or your counsel, like as one of the first couple phone calls, right, that you make to say, hey, I'm not sure this rises to the level, but just in case, here's what's going on, and at least have that as a top of mind action item so that you don't get in that situation where you're just kind of panicking and trying to put out the brush fire and then realize that those expenses could have been covered under the policy and now are not because you didn't kind of provide the right notice. So um, just an important takeaway for our audience today. Yeah, no, I, it, it is uh, it is critical. And I would, I would urge uh, policyholders to, uh, you know, over-inform in this space rather than under-inform. Um, uh, you know, be very cautious here because it also depends on the type of policy that you have. But every single insurance policy in its terms and conditions will outline uh, your responsibilities uh, uh, to report claims uh, to the insurer. Those responsibilities can be fairly gray, uh, which is which is favorable uh, to the policyholder. They can also be as stringent as giving you a, a specific certain number of days, uh, like 30 days to turn this over to us. And, and, and they will identify knowledge of a circumstance as being when, when someone essentially, you know, in the executive staff or, you know, at a higher level of the organization uh, essentially should have known to turn those, uh, those circumstances over to their insurance carrier. And I, I know I said it earlier, but I, I can't caution this enough, you know, because we hear it so often from policyholders. It's, well, I don't want to turn that in and for my rates to go up or for somebody to make a change at renewal. That just frankly does not happen. Uh, you know, when we turn in circumstances, if the claim does not progress and there is no payment made, it will have zero impact on your future renewals. Um, you know, there's even, an, you know, something that we do within our agency all the time and that most advisors do, which is just provide notice only. So we will have situations where there's maybe not yet been a, a monetary demand or, uh, you, know, uh, you know, to make this super simple, right? I mean, maybe somebody even slips and falls, injures themselves on the premises. You know, they haven't, they haven't said, we're going to turn around and sue you. You know, we can, we can, um, you know, easily turn those claims over to an insurance carrier of notification only. So saying like, you know, so on, you know, November 5th, uh, you know, we had this circumstance happen. You've now satisfied that condition with your insurance carrier to notify them of a potential uh, uh, claim and it will have zero impact. They don't even necessarily open a full claim file at that point. Uh, they would just simply say, hey, you know, should, you know, X or, or X or Y happen from here, uh, you know, please notify us, but, uh, but thanks for turning it over. So uh, I, I would, I would follow Nicole's advice here, which would be, you know, reach out to your, your insurance advisor, reach out to your attorney uh, to walk through these scenarios to determine when the, when the right time to inform the insurance carrier would be so that you don't end up in a situation where you may have had a claim that would have been otherwise covered, uh, but, but you did not meet their reporting requirements. Yeah, exactly. 
And just as we wrap up, I don't have much to say unless you have something you want to um, share with respect to med mal coverage. Um, again, it's it's relatively standard. I will say just a couple points that come up from time to time with respect to that coverage that at least we see at Browse. Um, as we just described, uh, the notice obligations are similar. So again, depending on the event uh, that occurred with the healthcare provider and their carrier, just be mindful that some things may need to be, no you know, your carrier may be notified about. So um, always at least good to do the analysis, even it does if it doesn't result in an actual notification, but talk it through with an expert, make sure you've had that discussion so you're aware of um, some of the risks there. The other thing that comes up in our space with respect to med mal coverage is a business associate agreement. Um, you know, I, I, we don't have enough time to go through, neither does, do most people want to hear <laughs> the analysis on whether or not a business associate agreement applies. I will tell you that generally as, as a carrier without exchanging protected health information, um, you know, we don't necessarily need a business associate agreement. Where it gets a little bit gray is, is if and when you start turning documents over to a carrier. And sometimes it doesn't even result in a per se uh, litigation type um, legal procedure. It might just be a settlement. And even though it's not an official complaint in a court of law, um, as soon as you start talking about specific patient information, um, it's time to start figuring out and probably engaging and entering into a business associate agreement. And I think there's some dispute among healthcare attorneys about whether or not a BAA is needed. Um, and, you know, in my view, anyway, a lot of times they're relatively standard and the agreement on them is going to apply. The terms are going to apply whether you enter into it or not, meaning the, the, uh, the people who get the information are going to be on the hook for maintaining confidentiality. So it's often better to enter into the agreement and make sure that you're protected in that way for the same reasons that you, you have insurance coverage, right, to mitigate your risks. So with that, I think we'll just try to wrap things up for today and um, maybe give our audience a couple key takeaways on, you know, some, some important things as they've listened to, you know, your advice today. Um, the first is of which is that uh, just wanted to kind of review. I know there's a lot of you know check boxes and compliance things uh, that we recommend clients do. Um, this is another one that's important. I know people juggle a lot of important things, but don't write off you know whether you have coverage, particularly cyber coverage, as a just a check the box. We have it. Um, you know, take the time if if you don't as a healthcare provider or an operator look at it yourself. Have somebody else do it. Um, somebody who's knowledgeable in that space, uh, talk it through with your broker, um, talk it through with your attorney. Um, there, there's just a lot of legalese um, and a lot of factors there um, that is important to actually run down in, in good detail with somebody who, who operates in this space. And on that front, Brian, I think, you know, I know you, your, your group engages in this, but make sure that the broker you're dealing with sort of understands, you, you alluded to this earlier, your own internal corporate setup and your infrastructure. I mean, obviously you can't advise somebody the ideal coverage opportunities if you don't understand, you know, or they don't tell you the full picture of their business, right? I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Uh, it, it, is, it is so important for us, especially with these coverage forms, 
now and 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 how you can you can you know customize them that we that the broker your advisor understands uh, your IT infrastructure. It, it, that is absolutely critical. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Any other takeaways or thoughts you'd like to leave our audience with before we finish? Up? Yeah, no, I, I think I'll, I'll kind of go to your first one, which is essentially, you know, uh, making sure that you're just not kind of checking the box that you've got coverage. Uh, you know, we, we are a, 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 an advisor to our clients. You know, we, we use a consultative approach, which means that, and we're talking to our, our clients on a fairly regular basis. It shouldn't just be a one-time uh, renewal meeting that you're having. So uh, utilize your advisor, uh, you know, your, as, as, as just that, uh, as someone that can help you. And, and it's important to reach out to them as you're, you know, maybe, you know, adding locations, changing something. But in addition to that, if you're offering a new product service, uh, expanding into a certain area, I, I mean, those are things that, uh, that are major triggering events to be reaching out. But other than that, Nicole, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun and uh, yeah, really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a good discussion. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, there's a lot of moving parts anymore in, in really any industry, but um, always appreciate the expertise and advice we can give our audience as healthcare providers. And, you know, our goals are always to help them do the patient care thing, right? So um, so we try to help them in uh, some of these other administrative areas. So thank you so much again for, for your time today and to our audience. We hope you had some good takeaways from today's discussion and we appreciate and thank you for listening.